0: Today on the Free Thinking Podcast, we have architect, designer, artist, teacher and conductor of urban narratives, Nigel Coates. We discuss the power of drawings and how they are tools for catalyzing experiences. We mesh and weave the components of his many projects, from design influences to mythology to raw materials. We talk about giants, a magical Allegory for the spirit of cities, and we discuss his new book, *Lives in Architecture*, a joyous conversation that flows like one of his X-ray drawings. Hello, Nigel. Hello. So I'm so sort of lava. <laughs> um, so I was gonna. There are some things. I mean, I have many questions, but also you're like this. I also was realizing. And I also have, I have many, many of your lovely books
1: here. Oh, God. And you you <laughs> do have, do you have the latest one?
0: Of course I have. Yes, I have the latest you one. You do? Yes. On. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and it's, I mean, it's, I, I suppose one thing I really want to ask you at the beginning, you know, you speak about being in lockdown, writing away, and uh, interested in that experience because clearly you you seem to enjoy writing and the warmth of the writing and also you don't seem to be tripping up on any of the content it seemed to flow beautifully like your drawings and i wondered is that the case or is it hard for?
1: no it's it's easy for me to write now but it wasn't when i was a kid i hated writing and i was terrible at it and then Having written various pieces along the way as a teacher uh, an academic, and uh the need to explain what I was doing, I guess I've got better at it and then with the help of the computer and and you know using most of my fingers to type, I can sort of put down my thoughts as they come, which um has really enabled um writing to be a pleasure mm. and when I was in Italy during lockdown at our house in the Saint-Isier. Some of the time I was there on my own and I got into a good rhythm, sitting at a fabulous window with an amazing view and a teapot full of English tea.
0: Yes.
1: And um, I just let the hours go by. So you know that you're enjoying it if you forget what time it is or if you forget to eat. Yes. And that was. The case a lot of the time, and of course, I wrote far more than what as one should. Yeah. Then ends up in the book, and some of it had to be reworked. And my editors were very good at uh, giving me, helping me reject stuff and enhance stuff. It was a lot of work. Let's not pretend that it just flowed exactly as it is in the book, yeah. but yes i enjoyed it
0: I wonder given you you know your love of writing but also drawing and i've got, I've got a, a few little william blake images around me and i've always imagined him drawing and writing almost simultaneously as you know trying to find the best way to tell the story and to get the narrative out were you finding you well, were drawing at all as you wrote
1: You've planted a thought in my mind. I've never really thought of writing like drawing, but it is in the sense that as I draw, the thoughts guide me to take that drawing somewhere. So I'm not one of those people who draws simply to make a note, but someone who draws to allow the process of thought to unfold, and it's exactly the same with writing. You know you might read it back and think oh my god that's complete garbage Mm. and then have another go at it but more often i would enhance what i'd written and then reject and tidy up and uh, and tune what i'd written a bit like when you draw or when i draw i might fill in the bits that make uh make a form more three-dimensional or adjust a form by kind of thickening a line those sorts of um tweakings are uh those tweaks are are um are the same as writing yeah
0: Yeah. i can see that and I, i i feel that when i i think of you know, particularly some of your x-ray drawings and those beautiful big drawings for Ark Albion, that there is a back of house and front of house playing out constantly, you know, in a theatrical composite, they're going, you're not only talking about the experience of the city and what it would be like to consume it as an inhabitant, but you're also beginning to explain its workings and the inner anatomy of it. Is that, is that did the x-ray drawings begin with that thought or it just did it just evolve like that?
1: I'll take you back a bit. When I graduated at the AA, my drawings were quite stiff, quite formal, and uh, that was a sort of mood. And then I went through a very sort of uh, academically classical phase of drawing, and then I started to draw experiences. I started to try to draw what you might feel if you entered that space and sometimes those drawings were of existing places Mm. and sometimes they i would use that as a sort of design frame Mm. to design in the imagination a bit like a filmmaker trying to uh uh, tell a story through spaces images and you know uh, basically a paradigm of reality and I guess all design has to be a paradigm of reality to a degree because you have to be able to imagine it existing. Mm. The drawings are, uh, are uh, gradually became more; they became more experiential and more impressionistic yes. rather than precise. Yeah. My see. sketches are meant to convey a mood, a feeling,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: and. Uh, a sense of movement yeah. and that sense of movement started to come into my work in the late 70s i guess and i i i believe that in Albion, which you mentioned yes. they they were the most kind of accomplished of those of that kind of drawing
0: Oh, I I agree. And I think that a lot of the language there, you know, a city of flowing chapters, a living architecture, a city in motion. I imagine it's all hand movements. It's all a story of flow. And I find that really joyous to throw yourself into those. You know, the the journey is implicit within every mark. It's not about a destination. It's very much journey telling. Does that that does that feel right? It is
1: journey, but it's also telling what the city is to me. Because the city does not is not divided. You know, we're not we're not dividing up the city necessarily as planners might, but also architecture and architects tend to think of the buildings as entities, yes. and you can draw them in plan elevation and all of that. Mm. But I like to think of buildings as frameworks in which people live and move and things change. So there's no point in talking about the facades on a street, unless you think of all the activity of the street and the movement of the street and the people in it. So I guess rather than looking at the the city buildings as inert objects, Mm -hmm. I learned to look at both buildings and the city in some kind of dynamic relationship to our own experiences and therefore, I see architecture as synthetic and not isolated, not art.
0: Mm, yeah, I can see that. And I like your body language as you do that. I was reminded when you're talking about that, it, the, the definition of, of narrative. There's this wonderful lady, you'll like this book enormously, called it's called Jason Allison, and she's talking about um, the a, a new narrative arc almost. And rather than sort of Freytag's way of being very linear, she's talking about the idea that when we experience the city, we firstly meander, then we spiral as we find things we're interested in, and then we explode. And for her, it's this fractal relationship that we're constantly meandering, spiraling into things we're interested in, and then exploding. And I I, I really feel that when I see those drawings, that you are drawing us into this web of storytelling, but also you're nudging us rather than directing us. It's maybe I'm over. Well of course,
1: of course, drawings have limitations uh, mm. because they don't move. They're not like film. And mm. uh, they're not like walking in a real space. Yeah. But I use devices that I developed over time to uh, help the drawing draw in yeah. the the viewer firstly looking at the macro scale and then being able to imagine moving through the spaces that are in the drawing yeah and that was a kind of revelatory experience to be able to see how a drawing could could stimulate thought and of course i learned that from looking around me and learned learned it from the history of art from you know, it's there in medieval paintings. Mm-hmm. There are little pointers and it helps you to decipher your eye wanders around the picture. Yeah. And that became perhaps more sophisticated in the Renaissance. But, you no, know, that the visual communication yeah. often uh, sets up dialogue with the viewer yeah. and helps the viewer and maybe sometimes surprises the viewer yeah. or teases the viewer yeah. Into thinking more deeply and more dynamically about what is being presented.
0: Yeah, I find that fascinating. And then the and, and within that, I suppose I know maybe to move on to though that collage of many elements. I I, I was I met uh, with John Worthington yesterday, who sent his oh, papers, <laughs> and he talked about that you as a as an as an urban um, uh, uh, curator and your ability to draw together all manner of different stories. And I know, I remember you talking about the war in Japan, and I know it's been described as, I think, punk historicism was a great phrase. But I remember you also talking to me about how it was made, that what you enjoyed about it most was this endeavour of many hands, of characters from all over the world, who had took on this lovely curatorial spirit, and then threw themselves into it, and it became this better thing than you'd ever imagined. Could, could you tell us a little about that?
1: Well, when when we were designing projects in Japan, things sort of fell into, into position in ways that I couldn't possibly have predicted. For example, the very first restaurant we did there, which came to be called the Metropole, uh, a name I chose, I knew that my client, who later became my friend and agent, wanted something that was a total experience they weren't interested in the mechanics of making a restaurant they were interested in making somewhere that had a mood a vibe and was going to be in uncharted waters in japan and as we developed the ideas and i presented as all all my projects at that from then on i presented with using sketches that i Kind of learn through theoretical projects using that way of communicating, and help to build up an understanding of what the thing might be when it was built. And these these three dimensional drawings, these dynamic drawings, were much better at communicating with clients than traditional architectural or interiors drawings and more mood boards. And as the project developed, and we were you know starting to do detailed design they said well uh what's the furniture going to be like and i said oh i don't know i could do a little sketch and i drew in front of them some little sketches of what the chairs might be like and they said okay we'll make them so that was one kind of important move so from my very first project in japan which was only the second project I'd ever done. The first one was a house for Jasper Conran. But in that project, the furniture became part of our responsibility. But also I had the idea of saying, why don't you give us a budget, a fund, which we can spend on works of art and other things that make it into a sort of a real place? And they went with that idea. And I think it was, um, it, it, that set uh, a pattern for all of our subsequent projects in Japan, because they all included designed uh, pieces to add into the finished project, but they also included work from artists and designers of whom I knew many. And uh, I would gather them together and curate them um, in such a way that the buildings or the spaces had a sort of depth that you would get from your own home. Yes. Um, You know, we've all got objects. We we don't design everything in our homes, really. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, although Frank Lloyd Wright and Gio Ponte did everything, uh, I think that a, a sort of mix of stuff that is circumstantial in your home is what helps to make it feel real, makes it feel yours.
0: And, and those chance encounters, those serendipitous moments. I mean, I remember you talking about the was it the Italian bricklayers that came over to Japan to work on the wall, and there were elements. Well, that of, was uh, a
1: yes, uh, that was a specific pride. example mm-hmm. where they. I wanted the wall to look like a piece of Roman um, uh, archaeological remains in the middle of Tokyo, and of course, the Romans never reached Tokyo. And to do that, I I, I had the idea that the wall, the main facade would be made of a mix of brick and stone, and that it would look as though it had been adapted over time, so that openings would have been closed up and other ones created, and that a stair that might wrap through it, a kind of a process of adaptation over centuries, which, okay, was a complete fiction, but if you're going to have, you're going to make a fiction, make it at least as real as possible. So we were talking about how to realize the facade, and um, I suddenly, uh, 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 I suddenly realized that the the word for uh, the Japanese word for brick and tile are the same thing. Yes. So they. Th- were thinking tile i was thinking bricks used with kind of gloopy uh mortar and slightly messy and maybe some broken bricks and some bits of stone jammed in and of course i got all of that from my house in italy which is possibly you know over a thousand years old so it's been repaired and opened up many many times like a bit like a body having been subjected to many operations so that um that, I thought, okay, here's a problem. How on earth are we going to convey to these Japanese uh, builders, with despite all their enthusiasm, how are we going to convey that technique? And then I realized the answer was obvious. Take a couple of my builder friends from, from our village to Japan, which is what we did.
0: Yeah,
1: And, and then when that- they came back, to you know, after they'd done the job, they built the whole facade in sort of two weeks or something. And wore their little paper hats from the local building suppliers and you know were uh, uh the center of attention for all the uh Japanese um uh um construction crew. They um when they were back in Italy, they became celebrities in the Siena region, <laughs> which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, that that when you uh, when you're speaking about that i know one of the phrases you've often used is to mesh and to weave and i and i mm. i really see that when i mean again when i look at these Albion drawings but also i think about you know your relationship with with detailing and often you know, some eccentric moves of how you will overlap and juxtapose two different things that spirit of meshing and weaving both with time and typologies and materials like is writing it's isn't
1: there? it as is you said how we began. The, yeah. and how uh also that the the process of design mm. you can't I can't just have an idea bang it down on paper and be done with it that's not how it works I think it you need to live with it and to be uh, able to criticise what you have and invite, you know, feedback from others. But develop something,
0: mm-hmm. as
1: though, and then in, in, in a kind of organic process, mm-hmm. where you allow other ideas in mm-hmm. until it starts to form. Mm-hmm. It's like making a vase out of dirt. Yeah. You're making a something from clay, mm-hmm. and it's there's no reason. That it should become a vessel but yeah. you start to see the thing emerge in front of you and then maybe if you're developing that shape for the first time that you tweak it slightly with your hand it's a kind of you can't help but respond to what's in front of you what you're creating and i like to think of design like that yeah. and that's sort of although in in some ways that might be possible with computer aided design um I still think that certainly for me, the sketch is what, the, is what facilitates that process most of all. Until the sketch can't be real enough, until the sketch needs to be tested and drawn in detail, because that offers a sort of uh, 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 a process of, 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 an, of rigorous assessment of what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the model. And maybe, you know, you go forward until you're you're pushing it more and more to become closer and closer to what might eventually be made. Yeah, as you move. Yeah,
0: that makes sense to me. And so when I imagine, so I'm going to now leap into something else entirely. I'm interested in giants. You, I see you drawing giants, <laughs> talking about giants riffing on Milton and Blake and the idea of the city as giant or the country as giant and also clothing the giant and I wondered if you could tell me about your relationship with giants
1: well that sort of came from the work with my students at the AA um, in the early 80s and I know that's a very very long time ago um, and uh, each year the beginning of each year as a tutor, young tutor, I would set uh, the projects in, on a particular area of London. And uh, when I first um, became a tutor, those areas of London were, the, were more central, Soho, Mayfair, et cetera. But then when I started to move east and this found the city to be looser or more, more industrial, or ex-industrial or ex-dogs the more the city had been kind of leveled Mm. due to shifts in the economy and the way the city works the more the students got excited about the possibilities the more there were the the the, it 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 gave agency to the business of being a student Mm. and um The year I did a set of project in the Isle of Dogs, which I was proposing to be a sort of independent state, (laughs) which (laughs) seemed to resonate with students at the time. And the following year, which would have begun in 1982, uh, we went south of the river. I took them south of the river to the area around Surrey Docks and Bermondsey. And I started to look at maps and kind of walk around the area, drive around it to find features in the landscape, which I thought could be good uh, good keys to actually bring out, um, convey some interesting aspects of the area. And I found this place, which was an old point for a ferry on, on the south side of the Thames called Globe Stairs. Mm-hmm. So Globe Stairs, how interesting. There's nowhere near the Globe Theatre just the notion of the globe in relation to the docks with names like you know east india dock and canada dock and all of that and the role of the docks in the empire it was the globe somehow it was the, the docks were a microcosm of the world but then there were also lots of pubs called albion uh-huh. and albion as we know was the uh, this mythological giant, uh, probably invented by the Romans as they came into Britain, mm. um, the the English were the Angles or the Angels because they had blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm. So you know the idea that you could have on the one hand a reference to the globe, to the entire world, but on the other you could have this notion in your mind of uh, some kind of spirit of the place, which um, which I thought was encapsulated by Albion. So Albion, of course, was a giant um, in mythological terms, but perhaps needed to be represented in some of the work. And I kind of started drawing, I always liked the architecture of bodies, mm-hmm and um more often than not i would draw albion as a kind of sleeping figure yeah Hmm. and i think i got that from uh botticelli's mars and uh and venus in in the national gallery because
0: often where
1: mars is asleep it's
0: often you know i like the idea that this is the pre-story before he awakes for blake This is him sleeping. Well, it's
1: sort of in in Botticelli's painting, it looks as though they've just had sex to me. (laughs) So it's sleeping from exhaustion or whatever. I like the idea that the city, which, of course, is big and uncontrollable and organic and uh, um, sort of by accident is a kind of natural phenomenon, even though it's full of human endeavour, But I always liked the idea that there was some kind of um, spirit in it that was embedded in it, that was giant-like, that would, uh, I guess it's like, um, it's a sort of instinctive response that is a bit like uh, the ancient myths. But I didn't really kind of ever try to justify it. It was just an idea that I thought would help uh, a deeper and more kind of, Sensual and uh visceral understanding of what a city is.
0: Yeah. I like that, and that spirit, that idea of this life force, this spirit. I mean, I think that connects with something. I wanted to ask you about 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 gaps. You know, you spoke about ex docs and ex-industrial, and I note, you know, when I, Brian Hatton was talking at your lecture about you know pulling spaces apart and overlapping new and old, but particularly the gap. And I wondered about that in terms of that life force you speak of. And and because, you know, at the moment, if I look at our high streets, reigniting our cities, losing our lives to Netflix and dark kitchens, what will be those things that bring us back to the city? And it strikes me those gaps you've spoken of for decades is a great place to start. But we need to start with life and that lived experience that you mentioned at the beginning. I wonder what you thought about that
1: well you know, a lot of what we're talking about i found in in sort of street culture and kind of youth movements and music world and fashion in britain which always benefited and was seen to be, you know, its creative nature was always about some kind of resistance, some overcoming conventions, of which there are many in Britain, as we know. We know it's still a class-ridden society, uh, even though the definition of classes might change. But, um, But subcultures somehow managed to parody all of that. And um and make it desirable, especially to people with open minds who wanted to sort of be themselves and find out who they were. And I think that's sort of, you know, very much the case when you're when you're a student trying to find your way in in um in a both a living world and a professional world, you kind of find try to find ways in which your thinking feels your own. Yes. And um in Britain, we have a particularly anarchic way, or let's say sort of anarchic with an extremely small a, yeah. uh, as a form of kind of art praxis, a bit like the situation is, but whereas the situation is just wrote and wrote and wrote about stuff. And uh, yes, yeah, culminating in May 68. But in England, people in the 80s in particular found ways to make things which somehow expressed a kind of micro ideology that was sort of putting identity and discovery first. Vivian Westwood did that, Catherine Hamnett did that, Ron Arad did that, uh, Danny Lane did that. And I was doing that in architecture and encouraging my students to do something similar. So instead of reading Foucault, I thought to my students, Foucault. Yeah. Let's listen to m- m- punk music and, and new romantic and let's go out at night and let's kind of explore the wilder uh, uh, edges of what a city can be and somehow try to feed that into the city. And so the mix, instead of being a slightly Presbyterian idea of arch- architecture as constraint and good taste, Perhaps architecture could be could be animated yes. and slightly unpredictable yeah. and mix together things that were not normally thought to sit within an architectural cultural territory.
0: Yeah. I really feel that. And I think those words beginning with A, you know, from architecture to, you know, animator, activist, activator, you know, so much of, you know, when I look through these books, I see you having a go, I see you prototyping, I see you confronting your audience, and getting out there, rather than hiding behind a drawing board or a computer. And that feels like a really important message for young architects today that their cities need them, but they need to not wait for the job, they need to get out there and find these opportunities is that is that fair yeah
1: but i think they also need to i mean i i mean my own experience is is looking around i mean one of the things that i as london became more prosperous and it became virtually a permanent building site mm-hmm. i thought often that the building site itself with its rubbish chutes and scaffolding and yes. and, and and precarious ladders and uh, materials going up and down. For I thought all of that was more architectural than the building that would be left at the end of it, which often was super bland, extremely uninteresting, and basically a sort of pile of money just turned into a set of spaces for rent.
0: I agree with you. I often think of you whenever I go to a punch drunk or secret cinema performance in an old warehouse in the middle of nowhere, and there is performance and theater and activation and people you know, meeting the city in a completely different way, but in a place that is meanwhile, according to the developers. And yet this seems to be its most exciting point before it all gets codified, wrapped up and becomes a product it can remain a live program in that space. And I think I, I certainly would love to see more of that in the city. I mean, are you feeling hopeful about the city right now and the opportunity um, for this bottom-up
1: way? Over the last 20, 30, since the millennium, let's say, um, since since the world of uh, digital working of, uh, well, I mean, we've been through many, many phases and. Uh, London seems to have been more and more an expression of its uh, of its f- fiscal values. is finance has driven a lot, and that <laughs> means that the um, it's inaccessible. London is inaccessible to a lot of people who might otherwise enjoy it. You know, there there aren't kids coming to London and then squatting buildings and then finding their way. You know, haphazardly into some kind of creative role. I think um, uh, it's understandable that that uh, students feel pressured into thinking, trying to uh, make the most of what their education costs. You know, you can't be quite as wild and quite quite as open to uh, iconoclastic thinking if you if you've got to make a, a living out of it. So. I believe that you can make a living anyway because you, if you allow your creativity to give it space, so it's going back to gaps, you've got gaps in your own being and your own thinking, and they can provide a resource that perhaps you had not realized. So when you're acquiring skills, you're learning Rhino, you're learning AutoCAD, you're learning um, all of that. It, it, it requires rational thinking but without a little bit of, of room to manoeuvre, mm. uh, the, the process becomes sterile, just and the same is true of a city. Mm. So I felt, feel that over the last decades that the gaps have been ironed out. Yes. They've been filled in, or there'd be, you know, there are some, in, there are some tiny houses that have been in, built in the spaces between Victorian, you know, four storey now probably very middle-class houses, and you know, there's there's very little left either metaphorically or actually in terms of any kind of spare land. What's what you know, back gardens are sometimes even sold off for for extra development. So that's kind of good in some respects because it creates a mm. a congested city of kind of rubbing together, but it's not. Uh, when there's no room for dissent or or for uh, left of field creativity, that, that's problematic. So we, we kind of need to be, uh, we need to find those gaps in other places, probably in digital spaces rather than physical spaces.
0: Mm. And I suppose in time too, when I think about some of the night markets that uh, Amy LeMay is talking about for London at the moment, there's possibilities, I would imagine, in terms of a longer relationship with the day, the 24 hour city.
1: Yeah. But in the you know, in the days of the, you know, my first experiences of nightclubs, it was kind of good that the 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 night was ours. Yeah. The streets were empty apart from people going to these funny places in basements and old warehouses and all of that. Uh yeah. I guess the you know, you go to Hoxton at three o'clock in the morning, and with thousands of people all over the place, it doesn't exactly feel alternative, does it? It's kind That's of right. you're Not part get, of a yeah. <laughs> stream that is um, fairly predictable.
0: Yeah. Well, I it, I'm greatly enjoying reading your book, as I have with all of yours, and I think I think it's it's a joyous thing, and I think particularly I'm loving your candor. I'm loving the stories behind the scenes. I'm loving yeah your journey here and all of those openness about all those gaps, I think has been a delight because I think, you know, I think architecture needs to be open-minded. It needs to be a, a story that's as much around experience as environments, as hardware as it's about software. And I, I love everything about it. So I commend it to anybody listening to this. And Nigel, I suppose now, what what are you are you is there another book you'll be looking at now? Is it an exhibition? Is it furniture? Is it buildings? No, there are, there are into... all
1: those, all those. Um, there are lots of things in gestation. Um, I've done a new collection of furniture in the Far East during lockdown. Um, I've got another book idea, but it's sort of about food. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, I just enjoy turning over ideas, so um, you know, conversations like this are very important to me, yeah. But I don't have an office with 300 people in it, and I'm so glad at my age not to have that constraint and responsibility, yeah. So, um, and I don't need to have that, Mm. so. I, I basically can choose what I do. Yeah.
0: And that sounds like a very good place to be. A very freeing place to be. Well, Nigel, thank you. It's been a delight to talk with you. And um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for weeks. So thank you so much. And uh, So
1: have I. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank you. Nigel. Well, very good. To
0: see you soon. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thanks so much, Adam. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking podcast today. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are, and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you, and see you soon.